You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And Noah, Father, take these human words and by the power of your Holy Spirit, make them your very own. And let us see our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies around him, he said, This is how 2 Samuel 7 begins. And one can feel the storied movement of 2 Samuel that we have been carried along to this moment, to this chapter. It's a kind of cresting wave that is just now turned over. And things have been topsy-turvy unto chapter 7. The Ark of the Covenant was not in its proper place. David had to take Jerusalem by force from the Jebusites. There was no easy path to David's kingly rule. But now David is at rest, and his house is settled. You want to pull David aside and say, enjoy it, David. This isn't going to last very long. Because it won't take too long before the Philistines and then the Edomites and then the Ammonites pester David once again. And the king, whose legacy in battle goes all the way back to his encounter with Goliath, will have to take to the field of battle again. You know, there's a kind of stark contrast between the imagination of David at rest here in his home in chapter 7 and the next time that we find David at rest in his home in 2 Samuel chapter 11 when he's also retired from battle. And in the warmth of a spring evening, he sees a woman bathing. And you know how this story goes. David exercises his power in the grossest of fashions, culminating in murder. And we shudder to think that the man after God's own heart could be the principal figure of the whole Bathsheba debacle. But but here in 2 Samuel 7, before all of this unfolds in David's life, and before his home is is, uh, turned upside down, is a moment of unusual peace for Israel's most famous king. And his imagination goes where we would hope it would go. He thinks of his God. His thoughts move toward the one who picked him up out of a lineup of very impressive brothers. And as the last and least impressive of the brood, God chooses David. That's my boy there, not the others. Because humans look on the outward appearances, but we know that God peers right into our hearts. And here David is now at peace, and he thinks about God. The Lord is my shepherd. He's cared for me. He's given me a dominion and a throne. He's chosen me as his anointed. And I live in a house of cedar, a fine house. Yet my God and the ark that witnesses to his presence among us, it's housed in this movable tent. So I need to build God a proper house. And of course you do, David. I mean, this is a completely sensible and noble thing for you to do. It's the right of a king to build a temple for his God. All the kings of the earth do so. The temples across the ancient world attest to this kingly right. And even Nathan the prophet agrees with David. 
And just so we remember, Nathan's no sycophant, no one panting after every word of his master and king. We'll find Nathan pointing a prophetic finger at David's face before too long when he tells David that he's the man. He's the one who's done the great sin with Bathsheba. But not here. Do what your heart wants to, David, says Nathan. Of course it makes sense for you to build a temple. Nathan even says, do it for the Lord is with you. This is one of those rare places, perhaps the only place, where we see a prophet of the Lord, not a false prophet, speaking something false, even if well-intentioned. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry, and they do so here. There's a slight problem with Nathan and David's plan, and it's a pretty big one. No one had bothered to ask God about it. That's a pretty big oversight. And God makes clear that a temple will come in time, but David will have no part in the building of the temple. Since the days of the Exodus, God tells them, he's been moving freely with his people and is in no need of a house. Temple building cannot be initiated by even the best of human intentions. But this is important. This is no slap on David's wrists. This is a moment of great divine and redemptive unveiling. God makes it clear to David that he will not build him a house, but God's going to take to the building of David's house and securing it forever. Don't you worry about my house, David. Let me attend to the building of yours. And we move into what must be understood as a signal moment of redemptive history. God makes a promise to David that provides the foundation for all future messianic hope. David, your throne will last forever. David, when your bones are rotting away, an offspring of yours will sit on the throne both now and forever. You see, this is God's promise. This is God's covenant with King David. And what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the Bible's ability to, to bend time. You see, the kind of language that we read here in 2 Samuel 7 can be found elsewhere in the ancient Near Eastern world. O King Nebuchadnezzar, the great Marduk has established your throne both now and forever. But ancient Babylon passed away, as did Nebuchadnezzar and his progeny just like the Persians after them, just like ancient Greece. What about Rome? See, there's a transience to the dominion of any kingdom in this world. And we've read enough history to know that great kingdoms come and they go. In other words, it doesn't take a lot for our imaginations to follow Charlton Heston and the Planet of the Apes along that beachfront when he stumbles upon the ruins of the Statue of Liberty. It's an unsettling scene. We might not like to imagine it, but we certainly can. The tumbling of kingdoms, given any look back at history, is a probability of the highest order. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. But time is bending in the Bible. See, we don't, we don't have to be in the season of Advent to recall the royal imagery attached to the birth of Jesus. We can't even get out of Matthew chapter 1 without this elongated genealogy linking Jesus Christ to the lineage of David. 
Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that Jesus is born out of the seed of David according to the flesh and as the Son of God according to the Spirit. And rather than seeing Jesus Christ as, the, as a plot point on a forward-moving navigational chart, the Bible presents Jesus as the totalizing figure by which all of Israel's history is to be understood. Much like T.S. Eliot's famous line at the end of the Four Quartets, at the end of all of our journeying is to go back to the place where we began and then to know the place for the very first time. Having encountered Jesus Christ, we know now that 2 Samuel is a much more profound promise. It's bigger than any parochial or provincial promise to this small, unnoteworthy King David and his small kingdom in Judah. We know now that the promises given to David here, they're the very means by which the kingdom rule of God will be brought into the whole world, even into the whole of the universe. Time is bending here as we read this text, and our eyes are lifted to something grand, to something cosmic. And we all know that our world is out of whack. We all know that our world is in need of a righteous king. And we're left with a biblical portrait of Jesus Christ as the one through who this narrow promise to David is the means by which the whole world will be recreated and effective. We know the place for the first time. And emerging patterns in the Bible begin to make sense. Have you ever thought about this? Why David? Why the last son? Why not the obvious choice? Why Judah? Why a nation state of such little interest to the known powers of the world? It was a kind of an annoyance of foreign policy. And then we come to the New Testament and we see this carpenter's son over there from Nazareth. Yes, that ruddy one with the beard. He's a direct descendant of David. Really? And he also claims to be the very Son of God come to the world to make everything new. He claims to be the Messianic King. Really? And then you see that placard above his cross, King of Kings, and it's the truest thing that's ever been said. Can that be? How can that be? Murdered kings have a very hard time exercising their royal right. But don't you see the pattern of the Bible? Don't you see that the plans of God rarely measure up to the external instincts of humanity? God is establishing his kingdom on earth, his sovereign rule and reign over the whole of the created order that's been held a hostage to a foreign invader, to sin, and now he's making everything new. This is the new creation. This is the new heavens and the new earth. Sin is being defeated. Jesus is raised from the dead. And he's taken his royal throne as our ascended king. And we go back to 2 Samuel 7. We go back to the beginning. And we know this place for the very first time. I'll have to admit, I'm, I'm not really good at cultural and political analysis. I wish I was better. But there is so much angst in our current moment now. Do you feel it? And confidences in the promises that God made to David so long ago, these are promises that require faith at every moment of our existence. 
but especially at certain moments. When ancient Israel saw Nebuchadnezzar ride into the city gates of Jerusalem, destroying the temple, destroying the last Davidic king on the throne, Zedekiah, I have to imagine that confidence in the Davidic promises were at an all-time low. I have to imagine that at the time of Jesus, at his death, faith in the messianic promises of David were then too at a very low moment. You remember the Emmaus Road disciples had this conversation with Jesus unbeknownst to them, and this is what they said to Jesus. We thought he was the Messiah, but they killed him. I think those are some of the saddest words in all the Bible. These messianic promises are again and again pushed toward future hope. Future hope that God will make good on his promises. And all of our hopes rest on God making good on his promise to David's firstborn son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our ascended king. He's your king. He shepherds you. He cares for you. He rules wisely for you. He is completely trustworthy. But I also know that we live in the tension of Holy Saturday, caught as we are between the inauguration of Jesus' kingdom and its final consummation. Don't you feel this tension? Don't you feel this kind of angst in believing in the true promises of God made to us in Jesus? There's a part of our Eucharist liturgy that means so much to me. We will do it collectively in a few minutes. And it's we as a congregation will join our hearts together and say what's been known as the sursum corda, or the lift up your hearts. It's a part of the Eucharist liturgy that goes back at least to the early third century, if not before. I once heard someone say that the sursum corda, or the lift up your hearts, is a wonderful way to begin each morning of your day. Eyes open up, Lord, we lift our hearts to you. Lift your eyes to the hills. Know where your help comes from. Lift your hearts to your ascended King Jesus, sitting established on his throne, our faithful shepherd. Because when your life is spinning out of control, that's a moment when we need to lift up our hearts. When you turn on the TV and your political blood boils for whatever reason, lift up your hearts. When you're racked by boredom, or deep loss, or deep fear, or just feeling the status quo of your existence, lift up your hearts. When you're in need of reminding, reminding that you have a king and the promises of God are true and trustworthy, lift up your hearts to the Lord. Lord, we lift them up. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.